Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Just Aaron on this side of the mic today. Carly's taking the week off. But uh, joined by a very special guest today, uh, Twitter personality, film aficionado, Hard Mike is here. Welcome, Hard Mike. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I am also doing good. I'm, I'm doing especially well because today we are going to talk about a film uh, that I sincerely and earnestly love i have loved for most of my life uh and i think is due for a little bit of 2022 reevaluation and reclamation despite the controversies surrounding its filmmaker and star maybe because of the controversies surrounding its filmmaker and star yeah uh, today we are going to talk about the 1995 film braveheart directed by and starring Mr. Mel Gibson. Hard Mike, about a month ago, uh, the filmmaker S.S. Rajamouli, uh, who has created the international sensation RRR, appeared on uh, the Movies That Made Me podcast that uh, Josh Olson and Joe Dante do. And on that episode, he uh, cites Mel Gibson's work as a major influence and refers to him as a guru and uh, at the time, I uh, mentioned this online, and I think you and I got into a little bit of a back and forth uh, on the timeline and in the DMs about uh, our sort of shared admiration for the films of Mel Gibson. And I'm curious uh, if you would go into a little bit more detail about that uh, here and now, and, and maybe Braveheart specifically, or just, just Mel and his movies and, and how you feel about them, what they mean to you. Well, I mean... Uh... You know, I was born in 1990, so I was kind of raised on the on the Mel Gibson vibe uh, from the get go. First, uh, as an actor, obviously, because like Lethal Weapon and all that sort of stuff, the stuff mm -hmm. my mom let me watch as a kid. Um, so that was a, my first introduction um, with Mel was as an actor. But uh, growing up, you know, I, I didn't really have um, any restrictions on what I could watch. So I saw Braveheart like very young, uh, the first time I was probably like six or seven, and it's a pretty like intense movie mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> for a six or seven year old. <laughs> considering I'm not going to understand any of the like political intrigue of it, I'm just there for the head bashing and skull crushing and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so like Braveheart was probably the first film of his that he directed that I ever saw. Um, and it wasn't until much later um, that I sort of um, explored more like after I think it's probably the first one that I saw in theaters would have been Apocalypto. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I never saw The Passion of the Christ, though. That's one that's one that I have not touched yet. Um, but Apocalypto is probably my favorite one. But Braveheart revisiting Braveheart this time um it sort of reminded me what what's kind of like special about mel gibson is um not as a filmmaker not necessarily as a person he he has this sort of road warrior kind of attitude to, to mm -hmm. filmmaking and i feel like that is sort of his his driven influence as a filmmaker is trying to recreate um, the sort of glory of those pictures that got him started, um, which of course would be the George Miller Mad Max trilogy. And I noticed that this time when I was rewatching Braveheart is 
just how much he's trying to like recreate that kind of that impact that those films had the brutality you know it's not it's not like the best from a filmmaking standpoint but just in terms of like sheer action driven you know entertainment and spectacle um it's definitely the action scenes in the film are up there i would say with stuff that you know he was performing in prior to directing himself yeah he uh sort of seems to have this this very interesting kind of fixation on like a, a particular type of guy like a certain yeah. kind of machismo right and and he certainly embodied that as uh max rakitansky and and also his lethal weapon character and and all of these kind mm-hmm. of like action movies these kind of like hard guys that he played and and it, i think it sort of solidified his perspective uh of of this particular sort of masculinity and not only do we see him trying to kind of uh impart that that kind of hue onto this william wallace character but we we have him stacked up against a whole bunch of other types of guys that uh that don't match up with that right like a bunch of different types of versions of masculinity that don't quite rise to the occasion Uh, and it makes for some some interesting kind of textures to the movie uh, it also makes for some stuff that I think is uh, like pretty obvious, like homophobia. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, he, you know, he uh, certainly is working and operating in this almost kind of like mythic state and, and mm-hmm. sort of status in his movies all the time. I think Apocalypto for me, too, is is maybe his best from a technical standpoint. Um, you mentioned Hacksaw Ridge. I, I think that that one definitely does have a little bit of that quality to it as well. Yeah. Um, but he's yeah, he's just an interesting filmmaker and and you know we we've already both kind of i I think uh, equivocated on the point a little bit obviously like not endorsing the controversy surrounding mel gibson or or his perspectives we know he's a pretty kind of like ultra conservative guy may even dabble in some like anti-semitic and 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 racist kind of ideologies um though he's he's been uh pretty consistent in his denial of that uh but just from a filmmaking perspective he he has his fixations and they come out in such interesting ways on the screen and in ways that are both sort of interesting from a critical sort of objective standpoint, but also kind of indicting just in terms of the way that they kind of graft onto like the American ideal of like a man and of our own mythology. Mm -hmm. People would make the mistake of coming to this movie expecting, you know, to be about William Wallace because Ultimately, this movie is about Mel Gibson and and his macho action star persona, um, and that's and that's definitely like a mistake I notice is like, you know, a lot of people talk about oh the accuracy oh this and that it's like this movie does not care about the history of William Wallace. <laughs> yeah, this is using William the story of William Wallace, the poetry of William Wallace, the myth of William Wallace to explore Mel Gibson's own own self um and that's kind of why it's so interesting like and it is a messy film um it has you know like we said the prince of wales is depicted as sort of this um quivering little gay guy um whose father like throws his lover out of the window violently Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff um and and mel gibson i guess uh, there's no way that he was oblivious to that he seems to like you know, have reacted to questions about it 
that way, but uh, there's no way that he was like oblivious to like what he was doing there. Um, but it, it does it does make the film um, sort of that driving masculinity theme that you see, and it comes out in other ways. Like with, um, I think the most interesting one is probably with Robert the Bruce. Mm-hmm. Um, just his fight internally with himself over what he should do, whether he should do what his father wants him to do, whether he should do what his country wants him to do, whether he should do what he wants to do. Um, and that's sort of, that's sort of the most interesting subplot in the film for me anyway, um, is Robert the Bruce and his character and how he clashes with Wallace and how they sort of interact with each other. Yeah, and that that Angus uh, McFadden character, Robert the Bruce, he's someone who I I remember in my mind having much more import and a lot more screen time in the film. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, watching it this time, like his his presence is there from from the outset. We see him intermittently from even just like the the first act of the film. Uh, but yeah, his I mean his his relationship to. I, I'm going to call him Mel because I, I don't think it's accurate to call him William Wallace in this, <laughs> yeah. but his relationship to Mel in this is absolutely that one of like his sense of duty to uh, family and to nobility and also his uh, reluctance, but also internal kind of struggle and desire to to make himself into his own man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, as a subplot, like it almost feels like the movie could have done with sort of centralizing him earlier on. And like, we get that, that, uh, voiceover from him is like the first thing we hear over those kind of like vistas of like green pastures yeah. and things um, as sort of like a, a a book ending kind of thing but uh yeah he's he's a, a very fascinating character i think i think angus mcfadden actually does a really good job with the little bit he's given like i remember his lines and his like his sort of like chamber scenes where he's fighting with his dad very vividly across mm-hmm. like the three hours of this movie yeah, so when I was a kid, like uh, I was remembering it as I was watching it, when I was a kid, for some reason, his character always struck me as more villainous. And then I was watching it this time, and it was like completely the opposite. Um, I don't know why I remembered him as, as like more like treacherous, and I guess it's just because that treachery he does commit against Mel um, in the film is like, uh, probably had a bigger impact on my child brain than. Uh, than it does now on my like sort of understanding what he's working through and that kind of stuff. And he he does have some he does have some pretty great scenes like when he, um when McFadden uh, sees him on the battlefield and he chases him and he just sees Mel collapse on his knees in front of him and sees that heartbreak in his face as he realizes he's been betrayed by Robert the Bruce. Um, and both of them in that scene, just the, with, with that back and forth, sort of just them looking at each other and shot reverse shot is so, so well acted between the two of them. That, that, that really struck me in his performance this time. I love you. Always have. I want to marry you. And are you? You and no other. I came back home to raise crops and a family. If I can live in peace, I will. We will be more merciful than they have been. We will spare the women and the children. 
For all else, no mercy. I want this Wallace's heart on a plate. Where are you going? I'm going to pick a fight. Well, you didn't get dressed up for nothing. Go back to England and tell them Scotland is free. This one will fight forever. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! I think it gets overlooked often um, because of the controversies, just like what a good performer Mel is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he does a lot with very little, like he's got, I was talking about this on an, an, another show very recently, not, not one of ours, a a guest appearance, but Mel has like a a, a face, right? Like back when, Mm -hmm. you know, guys in movies kind of had faces, they weren't Mm -hmm. just like all kind of like beauty, but like no depth to them. Yeah. And, and those scenes, especially that play out where they're just like, you know, that, that kind of like slow down frame rate that like almost slow-mo, but it's, it's, you know, not quite like, not, not quite too slow. It's, it's somewhere in between like a slow motion and like a a normal, like 24 frames. Right. Uh, and, and just the stuff he's doing with his face, the way he evokes that kind of like pain of the treachery that he's experiencing in that moment, uh, the kind of like simmering anger and rage after uh, Catherine McCormick's character is is slain and mm-hmm. he's kind of taking revenge on on the the Lord and and all the knights. Mm-hmm. Just he he does so much with so little, and I, I I think it it often gets kind of understated, just like how strong a performer Mel Gibson is and and is capable of being when he's like really putting in the work. Oh yeah, like I mean that's sort of um what what got me into like movies was definitely partially mel gibson and and his performances um like obviously like we said earlier lethal weapon but uh just to take a side note here like if you wanted to make me cry when i was like 10 years old there was that scene in lethal weapon 4 between him and joe pesci talking about joe pesci's frog guaranteed (laughs) to make me to make me weep they were they were both on fire in that scene but anyway so yeah it's just um like you said, his face is, is everything. And it's, it's sort of, you know, in that scene that you mentioned where he goes after the Lord, uh, that's, that was the scene that struck me the most as like the Mad Max. That's your Mad Max scene right there. And like, that's like just revenge movie, like, like goodness right there. And his, his performance is mostly all facial there. And it's, it's a very visual, uh, scene I found too, um, which I didn't remember from the last time I saw it, like where, it's sort of that it's edited to where he's like, you're just seeing glimpses of him in between the houses mm-hmm. riding on the horse as he approaches. Like I, I just really liked the way that scene was done. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. That scene too, I think like showcases all of the really great work of, of Mel's collaborators on this film mm-hmm. as well. You know, like he, he's not the strongest director. I, I think we've already kind of mentioned, but, mm-hmm. uh, but he does have a, a cadre of like really brilliant guys, like working with alongside him here. Um, first and foremost, you know, John Toll cinematographer yeah. who, uh, wins the Academy award for this film won mm-hmm. just the, the year prior as well for legends of the fall. 
was was on fire in the 90s um, and, and probably should have won once more uh, in 1999 for his work at the previous year on the Thin Red Line. Yeah. Uh, you see a lot of that kind of the, the inklings of some of those uh, some of the scenes in that film here in Braveheart, you know, just kind of the way that the green sort of kind of pop and yeah. these these big vistas and fields and uh, just like the 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 haze of all of it. You know, we get these very beautiful kind of shots near like twilight and dusk and things like that, that that just evoke like a, a really beautiful and rich palette of colors. And you get that here in this scene as well. Lots of cool like inserts. The the sound editing is very kind of like on top of everything with these slow-mo moments coming in as well. Uh, and then, of course, Stephen Rosenblum, his his editor, who uh, a, a, another guy who probably should have taken home an award for this film. There's there's a really, really thoughtful kind of like syncopation and rhythm to the cuts and the inserts he's throwing in, the way he's manipulating the footage that makes it feel incredibly visceral. Like even when we're just in sort of uh, like like very static shots, you know, we see kind of like action foregrounded. We see things kind of moving within the frame and and he just yeah, he, he's he got he's got such a handle on this and, and these really technical craftsmen working alongside Mel make this thing, which is a really kind of cut and dry sort of just like revenge sequence really, mm-hmm. really feel uh, that much more like visceral and, and breathtaking. Yeah. And um like the good uh, sort of, I wouldn't like, he's not the best director. Sure. Cause I, I don't think he's very good with actors all the time. Um, but um, I do think that a good director listens. And when you listen to your collaborators who know what they're doing, um, you, you're still like, you're at least a, you can, you still, you can make a good action picture out of it. Like you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be an auteur and do all these tricks and stuff like that. You just listen to your collaborators and you, and you know, you know, you just, you do it simply, you do it um, professionally and simply. And as far as I know, like, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything about like Mel on set, like ever being like crazy, like egoist or anything like that. Um, so, you know, he's got that going for him at least. <laughs> For sure. And, you know, in fact, I, I think that he actually garnered quite a reputation, at least in, in his early career, like around the time of Mad Max and, and Lethal Weapon, uh, for being somebody who was uh, like insanely punctual and yeah. very like brief in the way that he would approach the work and, and just really, really wanted to get through it, wanted to to get the takes, wanted to take the direction and keep moving. Yeah. Um, I, I think that... Uh, uh, Donner was someone who said that he was kind of shocked to find out like when he was making the Lethal Weapon movies with him that, uh, you know, he was super on time, super professional, super like kind of crisp in, in, in his uh, approach to the to the film uh, and had just come from like having like five pints of beer for breakfast, yeah. basically. Uh, as an alcoholic myself, it's kind of amazing that he was able to be so punctual and get a reputation for punctuality while also drinking because you know I did, <laughs> if I didn't want to get up I wasn't getting up <laughs> no absolutely I and, and you know like maybe in, in my experience with it you know I I would be on time but I would not show up uh, in any state ready to work or in a way that would have you believing that I was I was good to go so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good you know kudos to Mel for that <laughs> yes we, we can say that of him at least that he he was uh, the consummate professional even in like the pits of despair and and yeah. when he was arriving at his bottom so 
someone else we should mention in terms of his collaborators uh is of course james horner who does the score for this film um immediately kind of like earworming like beautiful kind of bagpipes and and just the kind of score that you want for your like period epic and yeah i'm a sucker for bagpipes you put bagpipes over anything and i'm like this is great (laughs) (laughs) i'm a huge sucker for that kind of (laughs) yeah and that like love motif that that Mm -hmm. comes back in all the time that we kind of first hear when he meets Catherine mccormick's character like it's it's uh it's got such a hook to it it's immediately recognizable and it just has this kind of like sweeping uh just like majesty to it you know it it elevates all of the proceedings again something that feels at times somewhat pedestrian a, a, a little bit kind of uh cliched in moments like the, that score is the thing that i think really takes it over the top sometimes yeah yeah no i, I definitely like the music in it like i said sucker for bagpipes and i found that like especially over the like you know if if it was the, the music and the landscape um together it just really gives it this sort of, you know, like ghost, like ghostly sort of mythical feeling to it. Um, that's like really the powerful energy throughout the film. Like, even if I'm not like, I didn't, I didn't think it was like five stars or anything. I, it's still like, you know, the power of that film, the driving force behind it is that mythical aspect and the music and the landscape and everything like that. It just, it really drives that energy. Did you know me after so long? Well, I didn't. No? It's just I saw you staring at me and I didn't know who you were. I'm sorry, I suppose I was. Are you in the habit of riding off in the rain with strangers? It's the best way to make you leave. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I can ever work up the courage to ask you again, I'll send you a written warning first. Oh, it wouldn't do you much good. I can't read. Can you not? Well, that's something we shall have to remedy, isn't it? You're going to teach me to read them? If you like. Hey? And what language? <sighs> I hear show enough now. That's right. Are you impressed yet? No. Why should I be? Parce que chaque jour, j'ai pensé à toi. Do that stance on your head and I'll be impressed. I might kill the fly up, but I'll try. Oh, right? God, you certainly didn't learn any manners on your travels. Well, the French and the Romans have far worse manners than I. You've been to Rome? My uncle took me on a pilgrimage. What was it like? Rien qui approche ta What does that mean? But I belong here. Let's talk a little bit about, Mike, you already mentioned uh, the kind of historical inaccuracy mm-hmm. of all of this. And that that kind of starts uh, from the page on, you know. So Randall Wallace, the, the screenwriter here, whether or not he has any actual relationship to William Wallace, the character, uh, we don't know. <laughs> I, maybe, maybe he would lie about that and tell you that he definitely does. I, I haven't really seen anything from him about it. Uh, but takes most of his inspiration from an epic poem written by a fella named Blind Harry, um, which Very is 
great, great name, right? I hope I hope the man was actually uh, sight impaired. Otherwise, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe yes. he did, maybe he isn't. Maybe he doesn't have to be, uh, and it's just kind of, you know, his calling card. But either way, Blind Harry, great name. Randall Wallace, you know, takes on this this task of adapting this this mythic poem into the story that becomes Braveheart, uh, and of course editorializes and and takes liberties literally everywhere he can across this this like three three plus hour epic um i I think that you're right that it's a mistake to try to criticize this film from any angle of of its historical inaccuracies i just i just don't think that it's preoccupied with that on on any level Mm -hmm. i don't think it really cares and i think that you're right that uh, it's it's not a story of William Wallace so much as it's a story about Mel. Yeah, and it's it is he does you know he does try to use the story to at least show the uh, you know the sort of revolutionary spirit um, behind you know the war for Scottish independence and that kind of thing. But uh, at the same time, it's like you know if you if you know anything about the history, the actual history of William Wallace, and you sit there. Like I promise you, you're just gonna piss yourself off if you start trying to like find find uh, any sort of accuracy in here at all. Because this is this is a revenge picture. It's it's a movie about Mel's persona. Um, you know, it, it's what it was his second movie as a director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's also sort of in the mix there. You know, proving himself as a as a as a capable sort of um, competent director. Um, that that's sort of what the movie spoke to me as about this time. It was it was less about the sort of history of it because you know if you if if you get into any of that with any sort of movie, especially old Hollywood or any of the sword and sandal epics of the past, I mean those movies aren't in any way accurate, right? Like you just have a producer pull a story out of the Bible, hand it to a screenwriter, and go, "Hey, make this into a movie," you know, and uh, it's just not going to be accurate at all. Yeah, nor nor does it need to be, right? It's no. it's, it's uh, made more interesting and more dramatic by uh, by those those liberties that are taken by mm-hmm. by Hollywood often. Yeah, I was interested to to read that Mel was uh, he thought that the screenplay was good when he first got it uh, across his desk, but ultimately passed on it uh, at first, and then kept. I think eventually coming back to it, thinking about it uh, enough that he eventually called in Randall Wallace for a meeting and the two of them really connected on the kind of story they were wanting to tell. Uh, Interesting, too, that even once Mel had sort of decided that he wanted to be in the director's chair, he didn't want to star in it uh, Mm -hmm. and did so almost kind of. I don't know. He sort of dragged his feet on this. He, He briefly, I think, even considered like Brad Pitt in the lead role. Oh, yeah. Uh, which yeah. would have been an entirely different movie, but you know, again, as we're saying, it's like for for how much it it is kind of like a one to one with the types of guys that Mel has played in movies, the kind of guy that I think Mel sees him as, or or the kind of guy that Mel idolizes. It's it's so fascinating to me to think of him not wanting to portray this character. Yeah, and he does take his time. I've heard with with regards to like what picture he was going to direct and that kind of stuff. Like, because he hasn't made many as a director. And, like, you could say, yeah, like, he probably finds it difficult to get a movie made. But, you know, it was only a few years ago he was nominated for an Oscar. Um, 
Um, but um, he takes his time, and I feel like he really like even like with Goodwill Hunting, like he took like months to like get back to Ben Affleck and Matt Damon about not directing that one. Mm-hmm. But um, just his the time he takes, and I feel like it's that time where that sort of idea soaked in, especially with Braveheart, where it was like you know probably like there's no other guy to play this but me because like if 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 he probably sees himself as having that warrior spirit um you know like then that time soaking in this character um probably fascinated him more than anything that was written on the page itself like in terms of dialogue or anything like that because you know the dialogue is not the strongest stuff in this movie it's not it's not exactly you know sonnets and, and poetry and stuff like that um but the character itself as you said that's mel that's like warriors um you know like that sort of warrior mentality and it was just funny because as far as i know he has never ever been pro-war in terms of his outspokenness yeah um (laughs) but he definitely he definitely seems to to dig playing warriors and 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 investigating that that kind of identity because it's probably like you said who he sees himself as yeah he he uh really loves this kind of like warrior spirit this warrior mentality uh and you're right i I think that you know he was if i recall correctly someone who was pretty vocal uh in his opposition to uh to iraq and and to the war on terror in general he was not a huge uh not a huge george bush fan um, but, but did always praise like the heroes, right? The guys yes. on the front line fighting the battle. And that's kind of, uh, I think where sort of his particular kind of like libertarian conservative ideology sort of finds, finds roost is, is in that kind of like praise of the individual, like yeah. hero spirit and not with like these institutions of power. Um, uh, and you, you see that on, on display in Braveheart too, you know, it, it, it is a, a story inaccurate as it is about sort of scottish independence from the british and the british always make really great villains like they're mm-hmm. cartoonishly evil in this movie as they are yeah. in a lot of a lot and of the it, best kind of sense. like action epics i mean like an australian could only could only make a like a cartoonish villain out of out of the british and, and it makes for you know what it makes for good watching <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, like with with Mel's sort of like mixed heritage of of being born in mm. New York and, and then being raised in Australia, he has this sort of animosity for uh, for yeah. the British so much so that like one of the very first controversies he ever courted was like the uh, getting labeled uh, in, in, an anglophobe uh, for <laughs> making this movie and, and causing a rise in anti-English uh, sentiment. Yeah. But uh, you know, one of the things I think is so fascinating about this movie and why I think it, it found so much kind of purchase culturally in Hollywood and, and had this kind of big sweep of awards and massive success at the box office is how closely it matches with our own sort of ideas of the American myth of rebellion and independence from the British. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it's a, a Scottish story on paper, but it is very much a story of like the American Revolution as well. Yeah, it's not it's not a movie that was made in any way for Scotland or the Scottish. Um, it doesn't feel like that. But uh, the other day I was looking, I was doing a little research, you know, looking at the Wikipedia article for Braveheart, and I saw a little thing I didn't know about about how he had like a they built a statue of yes. Mel Gibson 
as <laughs> William Wallace to put in the parking lot of the Wallace uh, like monument uh, in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it was like apparently just loathed by everybody in Scotland. Like, nobody, nobody liked this thing <laughs> being there. And uh, it's just funny, like, because, like, you know, the movie itself, I don't know this i don't know scotland's opinion on the film but like you said this is not a movie about scotland this is a movie about the the sort of revolutionary independent uh liberty-minded red-blooded american man and you know it's it's also like revenge is american um revenge is is a is is an american thing um as well and that's what this is like you know, his, his, the love of his life is taken from him and that's what drives it. It's not, it doesn't come out of any sort of, you know, necessarily Scott, like the English are the ones who kill her. Um, and that's sort of why they're the targets of his ire, but, um, it doesn't really, you know, feel like it's about Scottish independence. No, not, not even a little bit. Um, (laughs) that, that's that statue, by the way, that you're bringing up, um, it's, uh, by an an artist named uh, Tom Church, I think. Uh, and just in the parking lot, like if there's ever been a, a a better kind of like metaphor for like the influence of like movie making and, and it's like, uh, and, and, and this version of William Wallace, as it compares to the actual William Wallace of Scotland, like no, no better metaphor than just like a really sort of like tasteless kind of bland portrait of Mel Gibson with the word freedom at his feet. (laughs) Uh, in, in the parking lot of the William Wallace Monument, um, it it really is like a, a really it's really bad. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll link to a photo of it in the episode yeah, description or something because it it's does. worth seeing. Like when when I actually saw and was reading about this, I was like, this is this is so goofy. Like <laughs> I mean, like really awful. If you if if you're listening to this and you can't wait to to find it or whatever, and we link it. You really have to look at it and and look at the face. <laughs> <laughs> the face is the best part of it, yeah, for sure. Looks nothing like Mel Gibson. Looks like he just shit his pants. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I, a I weird like, statue. <laughs> it's such a weird statue. He's got his like uh you know heavy ball and chain that he uses to smash skulls that he's holding <laughs> rather than his like customary long sword. And on the shield itself is just etched the word. Braveheart, in case you didn't figure out beforehand what it was or what yeah. it was meant to represent. And perfect. And I, I think I also read that they like put a cage around it because it was being vandalized. And then people were <laughs> upset about that because it was like it looked like he was in prison. So I was just like <laughs> You can't really win with that. Yeah, you couldn't win with that with that monument in the parking lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe we'll find it at a like a McDonald's somewhere in in uh, like Glasgow. Uh, yeah, where is it now? Days. Is it still there? <laughs> no, I think it finally got taken away sometime in oh. like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. People were finally like, No, we need to make room for uh for for other things here but uh we should we should look up the the history of it and where it resides now maybe it would make for a good photo op uh uh but you know beyond that too like uh, in in thinking about this in its relationship to like the american story the sort of hollywood story of rebellion of like the, the scrappy young upstarts fighting the imperial power uh it is funny that like not what like i think five six years after this 
uh, Roland Emmerich would just take away any sort of like subtext and and just make it a direct one to one and and cast Mel as the Patriot, mm-hmm. uh, in which it's it's a near beat for beat identical story to this one, uh, save for the fact that at the end of it he he winds up living and and leading this uh, rebellion to victory instead of uh, being, it, being kind it, of brutally tortured. It really is the same idea where you know you have to take the historical, which was about you know bigger scope of issues um, you know the scottish independence was about a lot of things um, as was the american revolution but when you're making a movie about it when you're making this kind of movie whether it be braveheart or emmerich's uh, the patriot you have to make it personal you have to you have to take it and you have to make it personal and the best way to do that you know is through that that personal revenge story and um mel is just from the from the very beginning has always been the guy that that sells that better than anybody in Hollywood ever has. Yeah, he just he just has this this incredible sort of like star power around him as a performer and and the way that he's able to do this it's just it's it's a movie you know right now in the conversation on online uh, there's a lot of of James Cameron talk right because mm-hmm. avatar is is being re-released in theaters and i don't know where you fall uh in terms of your uh affinity for or lack thereof mike uh for for avatar itself but a thing that i love about james cameron and specifically like his his epics like titanic and stuff that are a little bit kind of more weepy and and histrionic mm-hmm. is just like the the absolute sincerity and just like unabashed earnestness of it while also being just like a technical feat and just mm-hmm. this like incredibly ravishing spectacle I, I i love when movies are able to do that yeah and you know like avatar i'm i was sour on avatar i worked at a movie theater when it came out back in 2009 <laughs> so really despised it refused to see it didn't want to talk about it ever um, and then like a few years later, I finally, I caught the, the first one I saw was the extended cut, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like I love James Cameron. All of his movies have, have personally been some of my favorites and I have a lot of personal history with them and that sort of stuff through my life. So I'm definitely like James Cameron is weaved into me just as much as Mel Gibson is. And, um, Avatar, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, Avatar. It's it's a it's a good movie, just strict for me, strictly technically speaking. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a spectacle, and that's sort of what I like about uh, like Braveheart. I don't think it's necessary on paper. It's not a great movie. <laughs> um, when you watch it, when you get caught up in its rapture, when you get caught up in the story and Mel's performance, in the music, in the landscape, um, in the battle scenes. Uh, you definitely get lost in that spectacle. And when a movie can do that to you, even if it's not very good, even if you're questioning it the whole time, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty special feat. And I think it's something that's missing um, these days, especially since we stopped uh, letting people like Mel Gibson make crazy movies, even though he just made a movie, I understand, a few years ago. But still he's like as an actor he's been he's been bumped off to the to like the less than b movie like z movie direct to video Mm -hmm. kind of stuff um and you just you just don't have any like interesting weird characters making kind of alternatives to um you know like the like more like boring 
uh, gray matter slop that comes out of Hollywood. And that stuff existed in the 90s too, but then you had genuinely weird spectacle blockbusters like Braveheart come out um, that were made sort of, you know, uh, I guess I don't I want I don't want to say it's a vanity project because it doesn't feel like a vanity project, mm-hmm. um, even though he inserts himself so much in it. Uh, but you just you don't have that sort of weird sort of star driven directed by the star going to put his personality out there himself out there. It just doesn't happen in spectacle films anymore. Yeah, we just we don't get this kind of thing. I, I agree that, you know, it, it's weird to call it kind of a vanity project, but it is in some sense, right? Yeah. It is a movie that is uh, a vanity project for someone who is a, a very public figure, a very well-known star and celebrity who is using his influence, using a big budget to tell a story that feels so incredibly personal because of how uh, how fixated Mel is on these types of characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this one has like everything that you will see throughout his career you know like it has uh that the sort of very kind of gratuitous violence scenes and those battle scenes are fantastic by the way um again despite the historical inaccuracy the battle of sterling bridge becomes just the battle of sterling in an open field um no bridge (laughs) zero zero bridges nearby uh unless you know Bo is is there somewhere in the background we don't know for sure uh but you know these moments are just like brilliantly rendered and executed it's it's you know a technical feat there's tons of extras there's lots of moving parts i never know how they do like horse training and effects in these movies uh you know like it's always insane you watch this and like you're seeing spears go into horses and i have no idea how that is not a real horse that's being stabbed in the chest um like it's, it's it's incredible um just the like the inserts alone like i was sort of like after i watched the movie i went through and i like some of the battle scenes and i just was like pausing on shots and like there's just like an insane amount of like just like little moments of gore of violence of this and it's just it's very brutal yeah and what's interesting about is like it doesn't uh it doesn't ever turn into this kind of like cacophony of of just like incessant violence like it doesn't ever feel too over the top or exploitative and i think that they do a really good thing here you know like mel gets his his money shots in where Mm -hmm. you know we see like a limb getting severed or like a head getting caved in and those are intercut with things that are otherwise pretty kind of just like rote run-of-the-mill sort of like fight choreography without like you know the open wounds and without the blood splatters and things like that uh and and so you know it, it gives this sensation kind of in the aggregate of this, you know, symphony of violence and this bloodshed when really it's just like a couple of very distinct moments that are, are, are framed and, and captured very effectively to give you this overall kind of sense of the grandeur and sort of like visceral quality of it. Yeah. And that's something that I think Mel as his career progressed, he, he got more visceral. Um, whereas this, this seems to be a good balance of like him trying to make a people pleaser as well as, you know, in, indulge in his own sort of like um, visions of brutality, which I, I guess comes from his his um, his his religious beliefs, his his religion of of being like very much like brutality is sort of a way of life. It's a truth in life, um, and it's not something that can be avoided, especially in telling a story like this. 
you know, where you you could you could have done a Braveheart without any gore whatsoever, um, but it wouldn't have been as interesting. It would have been like ten times as boring, um, and and that kind of stuff. But it is balanced well, and I do you know I kind of was knocking on the dialogue and and the performances from some of the other cast members earlier. But I do there were some, you know, like of the more chamber scenes that were sort of well done and they're 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 well done in a way that it does feel like a nice balance to the battle sequences and the violent sequences in the film and you know this film as opposed to some of his later work which i think as you mentioned kind of does away with some of the more crowd-pleasing elements in favor of like elevating the kind of uh stylistic and and sort of chaotic qualities that that evoke a, a more visceral kind of response to them uh, it, it does have those like really kind of fun little like side performances, those kind of like secondary characters who add a little bit of flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, always forget that Brendan Gleeson's in this movie until I watch yeah. it again. Um, and he adds like a lot of a lot of flair and, and interest here. I think he does a really great job with with his role. Um, and then David O'Hara, who is, you know, someone who shows up intermittently throughout things here and there, but uh, plays the the Irishman in this, the kind of like loony guy who yeah. uh, can speak to God and and adds that kind of like comic element that I feel is sort of missing up until that point in the movie. And, and it adds this kind of like tinge of uh, silliness, but also kind of like earnest sincerity to it for like yeah. the, the last two thirds. He's, he's definitely um, a character that gives... You know, he's not, a, I wouldn't call him a sidekick character, but uh, he's definitely sort of Mel's version of that in this. And he comes in at this sort of perfect time where you're sort of, it feels like the film's about to get bogged down um, by just sort of being this back and forth between Wallace and the British. Um, and then this uh, Irish guy comes in, and like you said, he's talking to God and he has a relationship with God. and uh and that sort of stuff and it's played for laughs um but it it is it is sort of it it is an earnest uh character and i feel like that sort of that that feels like a male creation to me like having this sort of you know prophetic irishman come in and help wallace out and that scene of course which battle is it again where um where the the British are using Irish conscripts, mm-hmm. and uh, what's his line? O'Hara's line is uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, it's my island," and he says that again to Wallace, like when he, when he tells him about the Irish conscripts, and it's like, "Yeah, but it's my island," and sure enough, like the Irish just don't fight them because O'Hara's O'Hara has a relationship with them, and uh, you know, so moments of brevity like that. In, in a battle scene are, are definitely uh, what helps keep the film sort of above being sunk down by just like brutalness and, and history. The Almighty says this must be a fashionable fight. It's drawn the finest people. Where is thy salute for presenting yourselves on this battlefield? I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh, the English are too many. 
Scotland. I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. I'm dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives? But they'll never take our freedom! I was I was taken this time around realizing just kind of how much of the film is given to Wallace's introduction and also sort of the courting of uh of uh, Morin, I think, is the character's name. Uh, Catherine McCormick's uh, character, mm-hmm. William Wallace's wife, in the movie. Uh, we we really get almost an hour into the film before we start seeing kind of like the bloodshed and the actual yeah. sort of like calcifying of of Wallace as this revolutionary kind of spirit and character. Uh, and, and I think that the movie is is better for it. I'm sure some people might take umbrage with it or or feel like it kind of bogs down the beginning before we get into the more interesting kind of action sweeping kind of epic portions of the film but you know you you kind of forget that along with being like a, an action hero uh mel is also like a convincing romantic lead you know he would yeah. do uh some like romantic turns i one of his biggest ones was what women want with helen hunt uh a movie you know, i watched a lot for some i have reason. seen that movie a lot too <laughs> <laughs> um but he is he is very charming you know like when he wants to be and and he so is. those early moments when you kind of get the the sort of like kind of sex appeal of it you get that kind of like whimsy and and you know the stuff for the ladies if we'll if we'll call it anything you know? <laughs> uh it, it it's it's pulling in that other quadrant of audience members but but it is genuinely romantic and and he does a good job with with that portion too and it's cool to see him kind of flex all of the different kind of corners of of his personality and the things that he can kind of operate within uh throughout the course of the movie yeah, I mean, like a lot of people forget Mel, like because they see Mel now and he's like got this like grizzled, you know, kind of face and stuff like that. But back in the day, like he was a heartthrob, and like you know, I mean, like I knew my mom, my friends' moms, like you know, Mel Gibson was one of the guys that you know got them to go see movies like this, and um, he he has a he has that sort of like um, shit eating grin that he has um like when he when he knows he's like getting away with something and then that adds so much to his charm 
um, especially in those early scenes with with her, um, with McCormick's character, um, because you know, like they're they're not supposed to be together. It's it's not something that's approved by the English. It's not something that's approved by her parents. Um, so they have that sort of like he has that roguish kind of like romantic lead quality to him and that shooting grin that he has and, and everything like that that comes with it is just like it's it's overwhelming it's overwhelming charm and you get why he's a movie star mm-hmm. i also always forget that uh brian cox is in this movie for all of yeah. like three minutes yeah he just uh, shows as... up for no reason <laughs> <laughs> well you know for for a little bit of a reason right because he's he's the beloved uncle argyle yes. kind of like the 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 kind of uh glazed eye and and the battle scars he comes in to to raise William after his father is slain by the British as a as a child and he's the one who really uh imparts all of the necessary wisdom for Mel to be like a fully shaped like 20th century American man you know kind of like this yeah this uh has all the qualities of of the kind of ethos of the era and a big part of that that I had never fully registered but but really stuck with me this time is just sort of like the emphasis on how uh, educated he is. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's he's very learned. He's been all over the world. He can speak Latin. He can speak French. And, you know, people forget sometimes, like we and we talk about on the show often, you know, this kind of like meritocratic uh, myth of like education being the tool of class ascendancy in the nineties, right? Like uh, Bill Clinton's famous, like, you know, you'll, you'll earn as much as you can learn kind of line about, uh, about education, about its meaning, about like wanting to open up avenues for people to, you know, go to better private uh, institutions of, of secondary education and and higher learning. Uh, and, And you see that here as well, right? Like, like he has to be somebody who can, uh, go tit for tat with like the nobility, not just on the battlefield, but also uh, logically also using his mind. And that makes him like this fully cunning and interesting sort of character. Yeah. There's that scene where um, he's meeting with uh, the princess or the the queen to be and played by Sophie Marceau. And uh, she, her advisor starts speaking to her in Latin thinking that Wallace is not going to understand. And then, Wallace starts speaking Latin to them, and it's this sort of gotcha moment where, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, don't you're not going to slip one past me, buddy, like that kind of stuff. Um, and that definitely plays plays into it strong because obviously, you know, the movie's saying like, if you don't play on their level, you're not going to beat them. And that was definitely a big thing. Like, even I remember growing up was like you have to like i they put me in french immersion i didn't learn a lick of it <laughs> i was in there for like 15 years uh didn't learn a single word of french um so you know i always felt that like oh i'm gonna let like i'm gonna have like less when i'm older because i can't speak french in this half english half french country that i'm in and that sort of stuff so i do remember that from back then and that movie, this movie definitely plays with that idea that you know if you're not if you're not going to be on their level, you're not going to beat them because they're gonna they're gonna outclass you every time. Yeah, and it gives him kind of that that necessary sort of like mentorship uh, along his hero's journey, right? He mm-hmm. he gets this sort of like saving grace in in his uncle Argyle, who 
just happens to be someone who speaks all these languages and and you know has the the means to travel and take him with him all over the world um yeah he's just it's just a, a fascinating kind of portrayal where he has to be able to like outwit on this level and and still though he's he's portrayed as a commoner right like that's the biggest yeah component of this too like it it really is like a bootstraps kind of uh story that we're telling here he you know is is some guy kind of like born in the mud who uh winds up being able to like learn and has the brains and has the brawn and gets the girl uh and then has that taken away from him but has all the resources necessary in order to like become this iconic figure yeah and i mean like you you see it in contrast of of mel's character and uh, the characters like Brendan Gleeson and his friends, his compatriots, that sort of stuff, who don't know as much as him, who mostly know how to swing hammers and swing axes and that sort of stuff. And you just you see it in the like Mel can speechify, like he can he can uh, you know rouse a, a a group to go and charge into battle, even though they're vastly outnumbered. And it seems like he's the only person in Scotland with the sort of foundation. Um, in his life to be able to do that um, because everybody else is is either driven by self-interest and greed or by just a lack of resources a lack of of knowledge and ability to sort of fight for themselves until wallace comes in and gives it to them yeah that's a that's a really good point you know he's he's somebody who uh marries the sort of uh, commoner kind of populism and the mentality of of a desire for like things beyond, you know, just just their sort of like individual lot and station. But he's not uh, inured to the system by you know some sort of like right of nobility or or capital or or possession. So he's the only one who's able to to kind of make all of this happen the way that it's supposed to happen. He's the only one who can uh, sort of. Uh, unchain them from this this system of oppression and abuse that they've been facing and uh, we we should talk a little bit about that speech uh, because it's it's oft quoted it is uh, it's it's very memorable I I feel like it's it's the the part of the the film that gets uh, recycled more often than not parodied more often than not but uh, I, I remember it being longer. I remember it being a, a, a thing that it was more more than it was. Yeah, in your head, uh, or at least in my head, um, as a kid, like remembering from when I was a kid, it seemed like it was a big sort of rousing speech in front of like thousands, like tens of thousands of men, like that kind of thing. And then I'm watching it this time, and it's like, oh yeah, they're the underdogs. And... They're like woefully unprepared. Half of them don't want to fight. William Wallace comes riding in and like there's guys walking away. And he gives this sort of briefer speech than I remember. And it's like, no, it wasn't as sort of uh, mythic as I guess I built it up in my own head. It's still still a rousing speech as far as like film speeches go. Um, And, you know, his face is painted and everything like that. So it definitely sells you on that. But I do remember it being a little bit more mythic in my head. Yeah. And it's interesting the way that it kind of has that potency. You know, you you kind of remember it as bigger than it actually is Mm -hmm. in the moment. Um, It's it's, it's all of the component parts of that film working together uh, as one to create this like really uh, moving, just sort of like micro moment that feels gargantuan. 
Uh, it also has a, a really fun kind of little Peter Mullen cameo in there too. If, if you caught that great, the great actor uh, Peter Mullen is in there for just like a very brief moment as mm-hmm. one of those kind of naysaying uh, commoner kind of guys on the battlefield who wants to, yeah. who wants to uh, skedaddle before they start fighting for the nobles. Yeah. Cause they don't, uh, they don't believe that it's Wallace, right? Cause he comes riding in and here's like little Mel Gibson and it's not their idea of who wallace is at this point through basically gossip and and folklore and that kind of thing right he's not seven feet tall and he's not shooting uh lightning bolts out of his ass (laughs) he says right (laughs) yeah (laughs) and uh that that definitely adds to it as well but i the moment after that that i i did remember from when i was a kid perfectly is um Mel immediately sort of undermining that sort of, you know, classy like speech moment, that sort of stuff with um, a bunch of guys flashing their dicks and asses and stuff like that, which is <laughs> which is always a fun way to go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one of the most vivid shots that I remember, I don't I don't know why this one sticks with me, but I just remember, uh, you know, when when they've taken sort of like the first volley of, of arrow fire yeah. and then they they flash their asses at at the British. Uh, and then an, another volley comes in, and I just very distinctly remember that one shot of just like the arrow stuck in like the one soldier's like bare ass. Yeah, he didn't uh, he didn't duck in time. <laughs> yeah, he got he got too he got too into it. He was overly excited, decided to keep flashing, and like yeah. didn't notice that everyone else was picking up their shields. But uh, yeah. there is these that, things happen. That, that is, I mean, I mean, like I guess you can't help yourself when you're when you're making a movie with a scene like that to. Pop, pop a shot in there of someone getting their uh, <laughs> their rear end pierced with an arrow. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you kind of have to. And uh, again, this is just like one of those moments where you see all the different Mel's in there. You see uh, his his rousing speech. You kind of see the the warrior uh, version of Mel when they actually start fighting. And in between those two things, uh, there's the moment where he rides up to uh hear the terms from from the english lord and and his representative and they kind of ask him like what are you doing he's like i'm gonna go pick a fight and this is that that you know kind of like cheeky uh clever kind of like uh lethal weapon sort of mel that we that we know and love he he gets to do it all yeah and uh, i do i do like that scene where he's sort of riding his horse around the lord and his representatives and just sort of giving them the stink eye, the eyeballing. Cause that, that really gets you your juices going, you know, he knows how to like build up to a fight. Cause you know, it doesn't, it's not just about the fight. It's about the build up too. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of this is about that kind of like just drawing out and wringing every little bit of juice you can out of it. You know, like the beginning does that for what would be sort of like, the beginnings of of a a more romantic movie right you know mm-hmm. you all the stuff of that kind of like the courtship and the the uh the forbidden love and you get to see them kind of you know do this kind of roguish thing where they're sneaking off and, and it becomes sexy and, and draws you in likewise with the battle scenes like mel knows that there are these moments where you want to see the tension wrung out like you want to see him literally uh like poking the hornet's nest before the battle because that's interesting because it, it it puts him at an advantage when he's able to uh get get these guys to express frustration and emotion and, and potentially overplay their hand um it it, it just pedals in that kind of like i don't know just like that that like gunk that makes hollywood so special sometimes yeah 
Tamel's idea of, of machismo is, you know, the guy, the underdog who, who just sort of pokes the dragon constantly. And if you're not poking the dragon, you're not doing right by your people, you're not doing right by yourself, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that this sort of um, is sort of his, I guess it's sort of in his later work too. Like I said, I haven't seen uh, Passion of Christ, so I don't know if he has a scene where Jesus like tells off Pontius Pilate or something like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, this sort of is, is so emblematic of that idea um that you know if you're not if you're not fucking with them you're not doing it right yeah completely uh you know he he doesn't have the moment where he tells off pontius in the movie but you know he gets the ultimate last word by uh (laughs) resurrecting from the dead after three days from the tomb yeah i guess Uh, that that's sort of the ultimate uh, (laughs) middle finger (laughs) yeah and you know, I we we should talk about like the the last act of this film because after all of these proceedings, all of the kind of like uh, you know daring do and and battles and and Wallace, you know, rousing all of these men to his cause, fighting with the nobles, right? Because they're the stuck up rich guys who just like don't get it and are, are too self interested to like ever care about big ideas like freedom. Uh, he is he's betrayed by one of these nobles and is captured by the English, uh, and. It is interesting the way that uh, that this last act basically just predicts uh, all of what the Passion of the Christ would be. Yes. You know, like it's 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 uh, often accused of being kind of torture porn, and it is an incredibly graphic rendering of of the crucifixion. Uh, you know, potentially exploitative to some people. I I, I have seen the movie. Uh, I was, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I remember it being a conversation. I remember like people from my church going to it to support the film mm-hmm. and embracing it for what it was. Um, you know, it, it, it's a weird, it's a weird movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I do plan on seeing that one one day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's, you know, again, it's, it's very well crafted from a technical perspective. It, it has all the kind of Mel Gibson tropes of sort of like the heroism uh, and, and the brutality at, at the heart of that. But, but we see that here in the final act, right. Where, uh, along with being the guy who like stands up for like big ideals and like constantly pokes the dragon and, and, you know, is this kind of provocateur. The other thing that makes sort of like a, a uh, Mel Gibson man, this idea of machismo is being willing to take your licks, right. And, and Mm -hmm. suffer the consequences and suffer those things to like the full extent uh, of, of what's possible. You know, there's yeah, the, the and, moment where, where Sophie Marceau comes in and tries to give him like the, the, the liquid to, uh, yeah. to dull the pain and kind of numb his senses while he's being tortured and he takes it. And then as soon as she leaves, like spits it out. Yeah. And he did, he originally tells her he doesn't want to take it cause he wants, he wants to have his wits. He wants to have his wits about him, um, while he's out there. And that sort of is sort of, you know, is in a lot of Mel Gibson's work, um, both as an actor and as a director, it, the idea of if you're not suffering, you're not a man, is a big part of it. Um, it seems to be sort of central to his idea of masculinity: is that you have to suffer so other people won't. Um, and that's a that's a huge part of this film. The ending always kind of uh, even like. I guess as a kid i probably didn't think much of about it um but this time around it sort of lost me 
a little bit in the in the last act there, just because of how overt the Christ comparison was. I still find it more interesting than I do, like necessarily great. Um, but I, I do think it's it's like, yeah, I think that's probably my my main opinion. It's more interesting than I think it is good. It's uh, I, I kind of laughed that I never noticed before just like how blatant the Christ imagery is during mm-hmm. this this sequence when he's he's wheeled in he literally is like tied up on a cross yeah uh, before they start stretching him out um, so interesting this kind of like you know this this persecution complex that that uh, Mel likes uh, to imbue his characters with and kind of color them with when he's uh, you know this this man of of noble standing uh if not you know like noble birthright but someone who mm-hmm. also uh you know is is willing to take it on the chin a little bit and and you you do see that kind of in at least in in my kind of recollections of it and, and you know some brief reading on it uh his his perspectives on his controversies that he's courted over the years too you know like i, I it very much seems like uh he has not been uh, terribly apologetic about no. <laughs> a lot of the things he has said or been accused of. Um, he he takes on you know a, a pretty measured but still very defensive kind of posture and and sort of denies allegations, denies the name calling, all those sorts of things. Um, but also kind of says like it's it's my duty to sort of suffer the consequences of this. And uh, it, it is just fascinating to to see the ways in which like Mel you know, looks at these kind of idols of history and, and sees himself within them. Yeah. And it's goes back to my, my point earlier, just about, um, art is so much more interesting when you're, when you're making it at least. Um, and also when, you know, especially with films, you get to watch them. But, um, when you're, when you're an artist and you insert yourself, into these um into these places and you sort of like compare your own personal suffering whether it's comparable or not um into these characters that have suffered and it just that that reflection of of reality and cinema and stuff like that uh is 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 completely i think missing from the landscape now although like we said earlier james cameron aka jc mel gibson would like that um (laughs) coming back out of the cave after uh over 10 years um so you know um it's just it's so it's missing and even if it even if the artist is a shitty person um i still think it's much more uh cinema and film and hollywood or european wherever it is it's better for it um than and then you know if we didn't have guys like that um showing up you know uh on hollywood's doorstep and starting off as you know a action star a romantic lead or whatever and then becoming these little sort of weird um ego driven um filmmakers and I think like if if one thing uh, comes out of our discussion today, um, as far as male skeptics go, um, is to hopefully explore this this sort of era of Hollywood where a guy like Mel Gibson was able to make, you know, a, yes, an egotistical work, but an incredibly interesting and fascinating one to watch, um, whether you fall on the side of thinking it's good or not. 
certainly, you know, neither of us would would go uh, and and endorse the, the the things that Mel has said, or or you know, some of the the opinions and, and the ideology that he holds. But so often these days, we kind of like partition out and and cordon off like a, a lot of Hollywood product into this into just that a product that's meant to be consumed and, and also agreed with uh, rather than something that is, as you said, like an artistic statement that uh, has someone's self and, and a lot of their own visions of, of reality and, and their perspectives integrated into the work. And so with Mel, it's like, I, I will always defend him as a filmmaker because uh, it, it is interesting because, you know, despite the fact that I, I find some of his views reprehensible because I, I certainly know that, you know, he uh, is someone who is no stranger to controversy. He likes that, right? Like that's, that's yeah. the thing that uh, we, we see in his characters. As you said, he wants to poke the dragon a little bit. He wants to be almost sort of like ostracized and, and seen as sort of like kind of pariah. Um, but he does make films that have interesting perspectives and and finding the ways in which they they kind of latch on to his his ideas and and his ideologies is part of what makes it so interesting because i, I because i don't it it doesn't resonate with me per se you know like i i can't find it where i'm like yes i agree with what you're saying but at at the very least i find it fascinating mm-hmm. and i think more things deserve to be allowed to be fascinating and strange than just like uh enjoyable and, and agreeable yeah and like that's that's like if i can talk about another mel film just quickly here um when i saw like for example apocalypto in theaters um that was unlike any movie american like like film that that came out in movie theaters in 2006 that i had ever seen where you know it was um i believe he used like the real mayan language and um and there wasn't a single like english speaking character or any of that crap that usually gets like forced on these things um and it's just a non-stop propulsive historical action picture that is like so hell-bent on being realistic to the point of like madness um and i think that's sort of like you know mel's defining statement is that he's going to um follow his obsessions off a cliff like to use a metaphor from the film apocalypto but he follows that obsession (laughs) off a cliff and that's sort of who mel is as an artist and i find that endlessly watchable compared to stuff that uh we end up having to see these days i mean that's why you see something like um you know ridley scott and and the last duel or something like stuff like that comes out and people go oh wow what's this like this is cool like this is interesting and it's because Mm -hmm. like that stuff doesn't exist anymore and there's very few people willing to make stuff like this anymore you know, we, we kind of have to look sometimes to the international stage for stories mm-hmm. like this. And, you know, we, we mentioned at the top of the of the show, uh, S.S. Rajamouli, director of, of RRR, uh, is a big Mel Gibson fan. Mm-hmm. And, and you see it in that film, you know, like it, it is the same kind of story of uh, a nation's independence from cartoonishly evil British people. 
Yeah. Uh, he he's been very blatant in his uh, homage to the the torture scene at the end of Braveheart, mm-hmm. the scene where uh, the Beam character is is being kind of flogged and refuses to fall to his knees. Yeah. Uh, is is a direct kind of like quotation of this film. Uh, and, and likewise, it also uh, is a film that has drawn lots of criticism for its uh, sort of like pseudo uh, religious nationalist politics and the yep. way in which it kind of erases uh, ethnic minorities within its country. You know, like like it, it has this kind of conservative bent to it. And it's it is interesting to see something that is is so embraced on the world stage and has become so popular be kind of colored with those those uh kind of challenging textures i I like that i find that interesting about yeah and it's and it's it was funny to see like because i was i was reluctant to see rrr when it came out because you know like whenever like a big hype train starts up i just sort of go okay like take it everyone take it easy like whatever um so i waited a little bit to see it until it was on netflix and i watched it one afternoon and you know what i was floored by it and not like I didn't think it was like a masterpiece or anything, but I, I was floored by it. And it was because of, you know, those influences from those films like Braveheart that I, that I watched growing up and, and, and seeing it on screen. And it's, it's just, it is kind of funny, like to see so many people who would probably never go see a Mel Gibson film embrace RRR mm-hmm. um, as like, as one of their favorite films of the year when it's, you know, so much of it is informed by Mel's work in, in cinema. Yeah, it's interesting the way, you know, you, you lose those kind of ripples of it because uh, obviously, you know, it's it's a, a, an Indian product and mm-hmm. uh, we, we are, as Americans, much less familiar with the sort of like geopolitics and especially the sort of like uh, nationalist politics of, of India and, and, you know, what what uh, would be deemed problematic on, on a wider yeah, stage. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I mean, and, and ultimately, you know, it's it's not a, a, a thing that is... Uh, awful by any means but it but it is you know a, a movie that uh, specifically celebrates like the the kind of like hindu revolutionaries mm-hmm. and and a a small sort of like religious nationalist kind of ideology and, and honors its its cohort uh within india while uh sort of uh making sort of second tier within that honoring uh the the, the muslim uh group in in india and, and things like that so it's you know it, it there's a, some textures to it there and and some controversy that's courted because of that uh, i've seen it called conservative i've seen it called right wing at this point in publications uh, yeah. but you know again like i mean that that Which, same thing is by it, the way that, that makes I, it more male yeah and, and by the way, the stupidest thing that anybody can ever say about a movie is like as a criticism is like call it like right wing or conservative or even call it like communist or socialist or whatever. Like it's a movie is is something on its own. I've never I've always been, a, you know, a, an avid watcher of Clint Eastwood movies. Those always get labeled with right wing. And I just find it such like it's the most boring possible angle to approach something like film as um just like criticizing it just just on the foundation of like it's it's um you know political textures Uh, yeah i completely agree you know and and clint is is one of those people who you know has i think uh transcended his own 
politics to make art that uh, is imbued with his perspectives on yes. masculinity and, and on culture at large, uh, but never falls into that category of being just sort of like, uh, uh, you know, kind of like moralizing or preaching about his politics. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's ultimately the thing that like I would I would uh, charge critics to to avoid, you know, is is the moralizing around it as like saying something that is reactionary or or right wing as being inherently bad. Right. Like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make it bad to have a sort of reactionary bent to it or to have a sort of like uh, conservative ideology uh, kind of mixed into it if it's an interesting artistic statement. Right. So mm-hmm. so few like like I'm not telling you, you know, to go and seek out like my son Hunter or something like that. Yeah. Although, you know, Robert Davi is the goat and, and, and a fantastic <laughs> actor. Uh, but but, you know, like that that movie is clearly like a a political message statement that is just like, uh, you know, a, a recounting of of controversies for the sake of like cooking yeah. up some, you know, to, to, to kind of stroke off the the conservative base yeah braveheart is not that kind of movie no it's not and you know like um as someone who uh, is an avid fan of of silent of silent era cinema i mean uh, hollywood filmmaking is is, was built by a man who was an abhorrent uh uh, conservative and that's dw griffith and Mm -hmm. you know like his films Especially like even not talking about the birth of the nation, but his response to that, to the criticism uh, that he got for that movie, was a film called Intolerance, which was basically um, the like first historical epic, um, the first multi-narrative epic um, across timelines and settings in history, um, and it sort of built that foundation while also being a film that was G.W. Griffith saying, it's not me who's the problem, it's all of you. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's like we have, to, we have to keep in mind that, like, um, you know, like, yes, um, filmmakers can be terrible people, but they can also advance the art in interesting ways. And uh, it's important to remember that the foundation of, of what we know as epic cinema, which is where Braveheart comes from, because that's what it is. It's an epic and is, is built on, you know, stuff like intolerance and DW Griffith's work. So, you know, I invite anybody that's that's skeptical about this stuff to go out and watch those things and just see the, see where a movie like Braveheart has its foundations, its roots in American cinema from. Co-sign that Mike. It's one of those things where, you know, uh, and, and we, we, talk about this a lot on this program obviously we you know we we love to kind of talk about like the politics of mm-hmm. of a film you know and 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 dissect those things but it's just one arrow in the quiver and it's not something we do to try to like uh to moralize right like a, a movie that that shares my perspective on certain things uh does not make it uh objectively good and, and yeah. a movie that you know like uh, calls into question my beliefs and and takes a hardline stance in opposition to those things does not make that movie objectively bad either yeah um and and i think that that's an important thing to remember like when you kind of like approach the politics of a movie and also remembering that like hollywood in 1995 like is itself like something that is is deeply colored with a, a conservative ideology yeah especially compared to like whatever our sort of idea of uh, kind of like uh, moral correctness is in in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those things just exist as a byproduct of of 
you know, a, a neoliberal sort of like hegemonic idea of, of Americanism. And, yeah. and those things are colored into everything we do even today, you know, like the stuff that uh, we're praising at like the big kind of like IP level for uh, its representation and inclusion is also stuff that, you know, is uh, very much entrenched within like uh, the, the military industrial complex. Like that, mm-hmm. that stuff is not, uh, it, it, it's always connected to, to other things like that. But it is like, you know, like you said, like you talk about the politics of a movie, cause that is interesting, especially when you disagree with the politics of a movie, because it would probably be boring to, you know, talk about a movie that I agree with 100% morally. Um, you know, there's not much else to add there. <laughs> um, you know, my perspective on different perspectives is probably more interesting for me anyway to talk about. Um, you know, and I think that that would make it more interesting on a whole when discussing films and when analyzing films. Completely agree. Yeah. Uh, bringing it back to Braveheart then, yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, uh, you know, talk about a couple more things and then probably wrap up here. But, yeah. uh, I, I do have a couple of things with this movie that I always sort of found, uh, I, I don't want to say objectionable, but but things that I have sort of like an allergy to in terms of like the narrative of the film. And one of the things is the uh, the relationship that develops between Sophie Marceau and Mel Gibson. Yeah, I, I think at at a sort of like uh, kind of base level of this infatuation of her sort of. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of being taken with him because of the romance behind his uh, his fight for independence, being driven by the loss of his great love. All of that stuff is interesting and colors it with kind of like a a sensual sort of appeal. Uh, but to have them actually like consummate the relationship is something I always found uh, an interesting direction for the movie. <laughs> yeah, because it kind of it it just feels um, within the runtime. Like maybe if the movie was like a longer epic. Um, it could have been fleshed out more, but it does feel sort of shoehorned in. Um, like you're talking about the the sensuality and like that sort of stuff makes sense, like her attraction to him and and why he would be attracted to her. And that's that's sort of interesting. But then like it just it just sort of it gets shoehorned in and then it's just sort of uh, there in the background for that final scene between them to exist. It, it, and and I and I know that like kind of like the 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 last part of it is to get that sort of satisfaction of uh having having the king uh longshanks kind of like cucked beyond the grave right yeah. that like she's yeah. going to give birth to like wallace's brood and, and yeah. that uh you know like his his lineage is going to die with his son um because of his you know uh inability to to conceive and and to uh to populate their lineage and and so you know you kind of get that sort of like nice kind of like concise roundness to it, but it is always something that I felt was kind of like clumsy in its execution. It it does happen pretty quickly. It's kind of shoehorned in, and it also like undermines I think like the central kind of premise of the romance and, yeah. and the the kind of lost love that he has and and his reason for fighting. Where he, you know, they they kind of play it off where it's like, oh, I I uh, I, I I see my wife's strength in you. And, and that seems to be enough for him to then reconcile that idea and be like, okay, well, she is kind of like my, my wife. So I, I, I can do this, but uh, it, it is one of the, the clumsier parts of the movie to me. Yeah. And it doesn't really add anything except it. And like you said, it adds that the, it's just, it serves that purpose for the end, end scene in long shanks. And, 
and that sort of stuff and just more adds to the sort of you know already sort of questionable um existence of the prince of wales character um and that sort of stuff so it just it doesn't really feel like part of the same the same sort of film that you've been watching and you've invested in because like it also feels sort of like um you know william wallace is uh you know he's doing this he's doing this for love but it's like you know like if if he's doing it for love then like why is he you know marrying this like going off with this french chick and stuff like that you know like it just doesn't really (laughs) fit in with the character um that you've been that you've been sort of watching this entire time and you know you you just brought up to the uh the stuff with the prince of wales as well and and i had some questions for you about this like obviously you know there is uh, there, there's something kind of challenging about it to a, a modern perspective of uh, painting this character as uh, inept and and foolish and and incapable of of leading because of his sexuality. Uh, but but I you know had read some criticisms of this not just as like kind of like maybe in poor taste as a way of sort of showing homosexuality as some sort of like degradation of of character. But also that these scenes were uh, kind of designed to play for laughs. Yeah. Did you get the sense that there was like humor in in those scenes? I mean, yeah. I mean, any scene, um, particularly between Lon Shanks and his son, is sort of if yes, I like. I mean, like obviously, Lon Shanks in this is is portrayed as a psychopath, um, but he's it's it's almost like. Um, that sort of the like uh, a male zone, a sort of homophobia coming out through that character, and the way that those scenes are directed in the performance, because you you are sort of given that it's coming from Longshank's perspective, and not in, in the sort of more interesting shared perspective. Because like when he throws his lover out the window, you don't see any sort of uh, you know. Um, from like maybe like remorse or anything like you don't see the prince of wales and his reaction as much and and that sort of stuff you just see a little bit of it and it's mostly like oh that guy just went out the fucking window like look at that um which is like you know not not how i would have (laughs) would have uh would have done that but um (laughs) it, it is definitely like it does feel um at times especially in moments like that like blatant like just blatant homophobia yeah, I would agree with that, you know, and, and even that like defenestration moment, like the the lead up to it and the way he kind of casually is like, come tell me over here, you know, like yeah. like what, what you would think about uh, approaching this this uh, military kind of like tactician and, and then just kind of, you know, tosses him. Yeah, uh, I, I do get the sense, you know, despite the fact that I, I kind of realized like I, you know, I wasn't laughing this time, but that like, oh, I, I, I could see why. Uh, given the kind of pacing and, and design of this scene that like an audience would react that way or that Mel was intending for for this to be uh, kind of like a humorous moment while also showing uh, just kind of how how vicious and evil Longshanks is. Yeah, it's, it's not really about his, it's not really about his, like just his blatant cruelty. Uh, it sort of feels like it's specifically about his, oh, look at how he, look at how he's going to be like cruel to these little like homosexuals, you know, and it, it, it does come off as sort of like, a, it has like, 
Mel Gibson, like not just Blade and Humphrey, but like Mel Gibson's own sort of like cruel sort of, I don't know whether he's outgrown those thoughts, probably not, but he does seem to have his own like sort of cruel beliefs um, towards homosexuals, especially in moments like that. Uh, but, you know, like beyond these like small quibbles with the film, uh, it, it really is just like it and remains a a really fantastic kind of watch. I, mm-hmm. I was definitely kind of nervous revisiting this. I hadn't seen it in probably about 20 years. Um, and going back to it, I I realized it, it still goes, you know, like yeah. it, it still has so much going for it. Uh, and operates on a level that you you do just get caught up in kind of like the sweeping grandiosity of it. Yeah, I mean, in that first hour, from the love story all the way up to the to the revenge, the first revenge being taken scene, um, it really just you you get caught up in it. It's impossible not to. You get swept up in it. Whatever happens after that, another story for each individual, but. Um, that first hour is just it doesn't it doesn't get much more like textbook brilliant um, spectacle filmmaking um, big romantic filmmaking uh, big epic great filmmaking <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it, it as like you said it comes down to the collaborators whether it's John Toll's cinematography and the music and it's it is really really well done. It, it feels like a movie, I think is what mm. you're saying. It, like, yeah, like yeah, a real go to the film kind of movie, you know? Yeah, like we, when you used to go to the movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where would you rank this, Mike, uh, on your, your list of, of Mel movies? I, I think you said that Apocalypto might still be your favorite. Is this a, is this a firm number two? This is probably my number two. Um, as I, uh, I saw, I haven't seen Passion of Christ, and I haven't seen his first film. Um, but I, I did see uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and that would probably be my lowest ranking, just because I, I think it, when you talk about like Mel's visceral and violence and stuff like that, I found that that film was like way over the top, <laughs> and it oh, sort yeah. of t- to the point where it took away from any other idea that was happening up there. Was just like you know, once you have Vince Vaughn uh, like using do torsos as a human meat shield, like it, it's like you know, any nuance is out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I was just I was just going to comment on that. I actually revisited Hacksaw uh, before our conversation, and I I was like, it's it's interesting to have a movie about uh, like a faith based sort of like conscientious objector to the violence of war, uh, and then have a movie in which yeah, you're you're picking up half of a guy to block yourself from bullet fire it, yeah. it, it seems confused in its own message about like whether it's uh whether it finds that honorable just like objectively or or if it's uh a thing that is like hey that's cool and all but like not for me yeah <laughs> it's, it's yeah. definitely a little confused yeah so i would say it would definitely go apocalypto braveheart and then hacksaw ridge very good. We'll have to get you to watch Passion sometime. I do. I do have to get him. And the other, what's his first one called? Uh, I believe it's called The Man with No Face. Yeah, um, I have one. seen it. It's it's like a, you know, he's he's like a, got some like burn scars from like a horrible accident and, you know, kind of becomes a, a, a mentor to a young Nick Stahl. Um, it's, it's not a bad movie. Not a bad one. Well, I'll check it out. Maybe I'll do a double feature of that with Passion. There you go. And and to those listening, um, I, I hope we've maybe laid out a case for for the skeptical as to the the relevance and and continued importance of Mel Gibson as a filmmaker, uh, if if only sort of as a 
an object to be observed and and studied. You know, there there's no uh, buy-in necessary on Mel the person in order to enjoy his films. I think. Yeah, they they do exist on their own, and they stand on their own, um, separate from the artist, as everybody always talks about. Uh, so watch Braveheart. It it really is still a fantastic film. Um, it's got a lot going for it. It's it's got a lot of things to uh, to dissect and and to feel, to experience. It's just an experience uh, and, and one that we get so few of in this kind of grand, epic, sweeping way anymore. So uh, full endorsement from this side of the mic. Um, and Hard Mike, I, I want to thank you once more for joining me today, uh, for bringing us this film, and, and for being willing to uh, to uh, go down uh, the, the rabbit hole that is Mel Gibson. Well, you know, I, it was my pleasure, and thank you for having me. First time I've ever gotten to talk about Mel Gibson so far in depth. <laughs> Maybe you'll become our resident uh, Mel scholar, Mike. <laughs> I'll take that honor, yeah. Perfect. Uh, well, on our side of things, you can uh, follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, there is a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod as well for our bi-weekly bonus episodes and content. That is the full Hit Factory experience. Uh, we will give a shout out to Linda and Jesse K, our overlords. Thank you always. And uh, we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone.